Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. 
Bombas, absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. John, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Man, it is my honor. I'm, I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, my pleasure. So I came across you by uh, a video that was posted actually by one of our listeners or somebody in my Facebook feed. And I looked at it and I was like, oh my God, this guy is painting blind and everything he's creating looks better than anything I've ever drawn. So, oh, thank you. <laughs> so on that note, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your story, your journey, your background and how that has brought you to uh, you know, the work you're doing and what you're up to in the world today? Oh man, I, I I sure can, but you know I have to say art 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 has really sa- saved my life, and it's been there my entire life. Like, I'll, I I think I could draw before I could walk. Even I mean, art drawing is just something that clicks in my brain. And as a child, I I was sick a lot. Like I I, I had a severe epilepsy from the time I was two years old. I had kidney problems. I had a kidney out by the time I was seven. Um, I ended up getting Lyme's disease. I, I had a great childhood because of my family, but Man, whenever things were bad, I had art, and art art was my crutch. It was my way of dealing with anything bad in my life. And so on bad days, I had art, but on good days, there was no better way to celebrate a good day than than to draw or to use art. So whether it was a good day or bad day, art was there. And it's been like that all my entire life. And But whenever I lost my eyesight in 2001, even though I'd done art all my life, it didn't even occur to me, didn't even occur to me that I could still draw. And... That first year, oh my word, so angry, so depressed, <laughs> so so angry. I didn't even realize I was angry. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know if you've ever been that mad, but just so mad where you weren't even conscious about how livid you were. But, um, but long story short, though, really, I, I um, I was a student at the University of North Texas, and that was the best thing. They made sure I got all the help that I needed. You know, because whenever you lose your sight, there's a lot of things you start learning. You learn how to read in new ways. You learn how to write in new ways. You learn how to do everything in a new way, like how to eat without getting food all over yourself most of the time. <laughs> how to cook without burning yourself. You know, I feel like Frankenstein in the kitchen, to tell you the truth, because fire bad. You know, there's just like everywhere in the kitchen, there's something sharp or pointy or hot. But you learn how to navigate all this through touch. And I stayed in school. I kept going to classes. And one of the main things I learned that year is orientation and mo- mobility training which we call it O&M for short, but that's where you learn how to use a white cane. And basically what you're doing is learning how to get around the real world just using touch. So whether you're using um, a cane or using, I have a guide dog now, I've had Echo for about seven years, 
way better than a stick. Let me tell you, <laughs> it's way, way better. But even with her, you're using touch though. And I, and there was one day that I was, I was leaving my apartment and I was walking to class and I thought, you know, if I can navigate all by myself from the apartment to class and not like get hit by any cars or knock over too many people, then surely I could navigate myself across a canvas. You know, because I'd done it all my life. My brain knew how to draw. My hands knew how to draw. So if I could just figure out how to, how to bridge that link that the eyes used to do by using my sense of touch, then everything would be good. And, and that's when I started working on drawing techniques that left a raised line, you know, lines that you could actually touch and feel. And so the same way that I would walk down a street, you know, by, you know, like I would find that corner and I would know, hey, I, I know exactly what corner I'm on. Or there's a fire, you know, there's like a fire plug or there's a tree because I don't move those things around. So once you find it, you know exactly where you are. So I thought, man, if I can find these physical landscapes and you know, these landmarks and put them on a canvas, then um, then I'm good. And um, so that's that's where it started. Wow. Sorry, that, that, was, that was a bit much. I'm no, sure. no, no, no. There's <laughs> there's so much there. Um, you know, I, I want to go back to your childhood and, and talk about it in, in a bit more depth. You know, that sounds like an incredibly difficult childhood. And yet, when I listen to you talk, you sound like the happiest guy in the world. Uh, and I'm really interested in, you know, hearing more in depth about how art served as this therapeutic thing uh, when you were a child and, you know, how it's influenced your life throughout, uh, you know, even, you know, before you lost your sight. I'm really interested in kind of how that's shaped your perspective on the world and especially dealing with all these illnesses, too. Man, um, well, I got to say, I'm happy now. I'm really, really happy. Now. I think I'm happier than I've ever been in my life, but that's now. <laughs> and like whenever, if you, if you had met me in 2001, I... I I was still a friendly guy, but I was not happy. And as a kid, there was times, especially as a young adult, you know, and as a teenager, you want to fit in, you want to be like everybody else. And like through high school, I, w- I was literally in the hospital half the time. I was either, you know, um, in the hospital, I was on homebound, or then I was in school. And so that that was a difficult time as well. But one of the brilliant things about art, well, there's there, there's a couple things. One of them is that it forces you to to focus on the positive. Art is only about what you can do. What you can't do doesn't matter. You know, if you can't draw like a certain line, if you can't do a certain thing, then it doesn't matter. You're not going to be working on that. So art forces you to have a habit of just thinking positively and, and, and creatively. You know, it's just about what, which is brilliant because if you have a disability, or it doesn't have to be a disability. Everybody has something in their life that they don't think they can handle at some point. You know, there's everybody has a bad day or a bad week or a bad year, you know, where things just seem out of control. The great thing about art is that it makes you focus on the positive things that are, that are, that are good for you. And the other thing is that it really helped me stay in the moment. You know, whenever I, I was having trouble with, with these different illnesses, I would worry about all the things that I couldn't do, you know, especially when I was a kid, if I couldn't go out and play or if I couldn't, you know, join a certain sport because I was having a tough time, you know, at that, at that time, I, 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 you know, I I would get sad about it, of course, you know, I think about all these things I couldn't do. I think about in the past and I would worry about the future, you know, like, well, I wonder if I'll, I wonder if I, I wonder if I will, will be able to go to that birthday party next week. The great thing about art is that, especially even with painting, is that I'm only focusing on the amount of paint on the tip of that brush at any given moment. So you're in the, you know, in the very nanosecond of a moment. And 
If you paint like I do, I'll paint 12 to 16 hours a day every day. I've got to paint every day. And it, it for you know it just forces a habit on yourself where you're you stay in that moment and you appreciate that moment. And so whenever even when I'm not in front of an easel, if I'm hanging out with friends or if I'm having dinner with a family or something, then I'm enjoying that. You know, I I I've you know my my brain's been trained to appreciate that moment and to be there. So I think I think that's the biggest thing that's that that's really helped me. And I know that after I lost my eyesight in 2001, and um and I started trying to draw again in 2002. When I first started, I was you know, like as I said, I was so angry, I was so depressed, and after about 6 months, 8 months um of of just focusing on the drawing, trying to figure out how to draw again, I just felt this calmness come over me. And I I didn't even know what it was cuz I hadn't felt calm in so long. I thought I thought maybe I was getting sick. <laughs> it just felt different. It felt <laughs> weird. I thought what in the world am I am I getting a cold? And then I realized no, I, I like that stress had just sort of slipped off. And ever since then, I, I, I'm constantly trying to think of better ways to draw, of ways that I can make thinner lines or I can make lines disappear when I, I don't need them anymore, of ways to handle more color. And the more I paint, the happier I get. And the happier I get, the brighter I want the colors to be. And so these days, my paintings are, are incredibly colorful. But if you went back and you were looking at the paintings in 2002, 2004, those are very simple geometric sort of paintings with very um, muddy colors. You know, uh -huh. the hues are dark. You know, you, you can tell that whoever did that painting is not a happy guy. <laughs> say that. So let me ask you this. Um, you know, when you're in this phase of being young and dealing with all these illnesses, I mean, it, you know, to me, it sounds like practically on the verge of death. Were there moments when you couldn't see any hope for your future? Oh, Lord. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, in fact, with the seizures I was having, um, I ended up getting Lyme's disease, and the the epilepsy was major. It was just it was it had ramped up to a, to to a big extent by the time I, I was a teenager, and I ended up getting Lyme's disease, and it actually went undiagnosed for about three years. So so it was just causing nerve damage and all this other stuff because the the epilepsy was masking it, like like the the the, the neurologists weren't able to tell it was Lyme disease because of all the seizures. You know, it was just, it was hard to tell what, what was going on. And then finally they did a Lyme titer and they figured, Oh, oh my goodness, you got, you, you, you have Lyme disease. That's probably what's causing all this problem. You everything that ramp up, but it was from, um, either the treatment of the Lyme disease or the crazy concoction of anti seizure drugs I was on, which the side effects can be more seizures. Um, so something caused the seizures to, to really go out of control. And I was going into this thing called status epilepticus, which is where your, um, the, your brain goes into a seizure and it doesn't come out of it. It just, you know, it just, it just keeps getting worse and worse. And eventually my breathing would stop. My heart would stop. And that's what led to, um, the brain damage. And, and it's where the optic nerve goes into the occipital lobe. And that, that was damaged. And I lost about 40% of my hearing. But I have I have um, hearing aids now, and I have a seven year old son, and he says that I have robot ears because I can hear everything. <laughs> so, so that's brilliant. But um, yeah, but during that time though, because you know the the neurologist said, you know, if this keeps up this way, you know, you know, he didn't really expect me to live a year, uh -huh. because you know you can't do that well, you know, with the breathing stopping and all that. That's not it's not good stuff. So and. Fortunately, that didn't happen. You know, I mean, there were times where they, they would have to bring me back with the paddles or, or things and because just to get the heart started again. But, but um, 
man, yeah. So there, there. Whenever that first happened, and I was a student, you know, whenever you're a student, the whole reason you're in school is because you have these hopes and dreams of the future. You have all the all these ideas about what you want to do. When I lost my eyesight, all of that was gone. It was just completely gone, and I knew that my life was over. I mean, all of these dreams I had went down to the point of me just thinking, if I try as hard as I can. Maybe I won't be a burden on my parents. You know, hopefully I can live independently and just not be a burden on anyone. And and that's, you know, and that's what I figured. So my life went down to a zero. You know, that was it. Like, you know, I wouldn't have anything new in my life. And there wouldn't be anything, you know, great or fun or anything. You know, it was just sort of keep keeping on, keeping on kind of thing. And the wonderful thing about that, and I know that doesn't sound like a wonderful thing, but... I, I didn't feel like I had anything to lose either. If you don't have anything, you don't have anything to lose. So that gave me the license to do something that I thought was incredibly crazy, which was starting to learn how to paint. Because uh-huh. as you can imagine, there's no like books in Braille on how to paint. There's no, there's <laughs> no, there's no, you know, you know, you don't have the intricacies of, of fine art for non-visual people. It's just not there. So I really thought I, I was, I had lost my mind when I was doing this, but uh-huh. I was so depressed, I just needed to get my hands in color. And I was afraid I would forget what colors looked like. Um, and that sounds crazy, but I just, you know, I thought, man, I was so such a visual person. I was so into the arts that I thought, man, what if I forget what red looks like or purple? And and, um, and I wanted to at least touch it. And that's, that's why I wanted to get into paint, because I wanted to feel color. I wanted it to run all over my hands and and just, just have that. Wow. You know, this brings up a question for me. You're confronted with the reality of mortality at a really early age, um, something that most of us don't really face until we're much older or on our deathbeds. I'm interested in how being confronted with the potential of your life ending at such an early age has altered the way you view life in general. You know, when, whenever I was a young adult, um, I, I lived for the moment. Like I, because of the epilepsy and all that, I, I, I felt like my time was being robbed away from me. So whenever I felt good, I would try to, I would work as hard as I could. I would play as hard as I could. I would try to squeeze everything that I possibly could into every moment of every day. And this just, you know, I didn't sleep much. And this just made me um, tired. And of course, when the seizures came back, they were worse. So I, you know, I just, I just live for the moment, but after the vision lost and getting back into art and having a new perspective on art, my, my thinking changed. And instead of living for the moment, I started living in the moment and just appreciating every moment and not feeling like I I need to run around and try to squeeze every little ounce of life, you know, instead just, just appreciate life. And Mm. so I don't know if that's a good answer, but you know, it's such a small change just made a huge difference for me. And and I've got to say, you know, in 2001, I, I was an epileptic and I was blind and I was sure that my life was over. And now in 2015, I'm still an epileptic. I'm still blind, but I'm happier than I've ever been. And the, and the reason is art. You know, art is a concrete living thing in my life. Hmm. And it's just, you know, I, I, I just can't I just can't describe the change that, that it has. And I think I think one of the reasons is that. I got into art for a very pure reason, just so I didn't lose my mind. <laughs> I, 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 you know, so I, I put my complete energy into it, you know, my, my soul, everything. And I never thought anybody would ever see a painting of mine. That wasn't even a thought. I never thought anybody would want to. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, so I just painted for myself and I, I, that's what I still do. And 
the only reason people really found out about my pain, like even my first couple of shows, I didn't tell people I was blind. I didn't tell people about myself. I wouldn't have a show opening. I would have like a little closing. And um, because I didn't want people to see me with a cane, I used a cane then. And I just wanted people to look at the art and think about the art. You know, I wasn't really ashamed of being blind, but it was just that I didn't want, I just wanted people to look at the artwork. And those shows ended up doing really well. It was, it's funny though, because every once in a while, like I, I would have a show closing. So, you know, you got to go get the artwork anyway. So we'd have a show closing instead of an opening. And I would usually sit in the, stay in like in the back of the, in the gallery in the corner, you know, with my cane. And every once in a while, somebody will come up to me and say, Hey, do you know where the artist is? I've got a question about a painting. And, and I would go, like, Oh yeah, I'm the artist. I can help you. And they would always pause. Like, like I was telling them a joke, <laughs> the punchline, you know, like, okay, yeah, where it is. And then there's no punchline. So they, um, you know, they, Whenever they realized that I was blind, they would always go back and look at every one of the paintings again. And I think they were looking for the blindness in the painting, which I thought was interesting because I was trying to understand what blindness was, too, and what my new life was, too. So it's like it's like, it's like we're both looking on opposite ends of a telescope at the same thing. I don't Wow. You know, let me ask you this. Uh, you know, it, it, often it seems that moments of crisis or, you know, sort of near tragic events in our lives become the catalyst for massive change. Uh, you know, I think about this quote by Soren Kierkegaard in this book that I've been reading that all change is preceded by crisis. And I can't help but wonder if the crisis is absolutely necessary or if we can bring about the change without the crisis. And I'd be really interested in hearing your perspective on this as somebody who's effectively been through the crisis. You know, I, it, my my perspective has changed. Like if I if I could go back in my life and, and get my vision back, I would. But if it meant that I I lost all the lessons that I learned, I I wouldn't. I I would choose to stay blind if I can keep the lessons that I learned. And it's it's like in painting. If you're going for a chiaroscuro effect, it's where you have these dark areas in, in a painting, and you have these really light areas, and the eye is drawn to the light area areas. And the only reason it is is because it's surrounded by the sea of darkness. It pushes you to the light. And I think life is like that a lot. You know, we, we focus on the really good things, the happy things, and we try to forget about the bad experience, the, the, the negative experiences. You know, if you go to our birthday party, you'll see a lot of people whip out a camera and they're taking pictures. <laughs> you never see that at a funeral, really. <laughs> the same thing, you know. People don't necessarily want to remember it that, 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 that clearly, but... I think I think you're absolutely right, though. It, it's, it's these dark areas that shape us just as much, if not more, as, as the happy areas. And sometimes the things that we think are good in our life, the things we focus on, we have an incorrect perspective. You know, sometimes the things that we think are good for us aren't. And, um, you know, the things that we think are going to be terrible or horrible or gonna, are going to destroy our lives actually turn out shaping us in ways that we never would have imagined, you know, and, you know, I've, I've got to say, I think I think sometimes, you know, we try to hide, hide our scars. We try to, you know, we try to, you know, put on this front. I think for a lot of people, you know, that that nothing ever that we're strong, nothing bad happens to us. But I think a lot of times it's our scars that are the most important, most important, and maybe the most interesting aspects about us. Hmm. I love that. Um. Let me ask you this. I want to talk a little bit more about your childhood and then talk uh, a little bit. You know, we'll start getting into what life was like after you started to go blind. Um, I'm interested in how, you know, the childhood you've had uh, affected your social interactions with people and your relationships in your life um, and how that's shaped 
kind of who you are today? You know, <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm not saying this trying to be humble, but if it wasn't for the people in my life, I, I would not be living the life that I have now. It's the support of my family and my friends. Growing up, I didn't feel disabled. And, you know, it's only now really, you know, that looking back, I, I realized how special that was and what a gift that was. You know, I, my family, there was never a moment that I didn't feel loved. But they also, they didn't spoil me. They didn't, they didn't treat me like I was made of glass. You know, I did everything. I took karate. I, I skied. I did all these different things. And sometimes, you know, it might have been dangerous for me to do it. Because, <laughs> you know, you're skiing and you might have a seizure. And, and you know, but you deal with it. And, um, and so, you know, there's things. That, but my friends as well. And I, it just blows my mind that I grew up with these people, these children that treated me normal. That I might be in school for six weeks and then I might be out for six weeks. And when I come back, like, hey, it's good to see you. You know, and it's like nothing happened. And that's really hard to put in words. I mean, it's just it's, you know, it shaped me. And it I think it instilled this feeling of of optimism that deep down, you know, when when all, all the chips are down, there's more good people than there than there are bad people in this world. Mm-hmm. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, let me ask you this. Um, how did your life start to change? I mean, just day-to-day life after you've lost your vision. I mean, that's got to be such a crazy adjustment to how you see the world and your perspective and how you kind of navigate the world. You know, um, whenever I first lost my eyesight, I, I was um, – this, this, this is dark, darkly ironic, I guess, but I was a creative writing major and a lit major. And I'd always done art. I, take every, I took every art class I get my hands on. But – um, but, I, but the major I was, 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 was lit and creative writing. And then when I lost my eyesight, I couldn't read or write anymore. <laughs> you know, that first year, like I, I kept going to classes, but I'd go, you know, I'd go into a class and they would talk about these books and I couldn't read them. And then they would talk about a paper and I couldn't write them. So I would get incomplete, but it was, you know, it's weird. You did, you did feel a little isolated from things. And of course you learn how to, how to do things in new ways. You know, everything is in a new way. And but I, I did feel isolated, and you know, I almost felt like in a bubble, like like um, disconnected from other people around me. And that that was a major reason why I started painting instead of going into a different discipline, like like sculpture. Because mm-hmm. you would you would think you know sculpture makes more sense if you're using your sense of touch anyway. But I felt a disconnect with people, even people that had known me all my life, and. They just didn't know how I perceived things anymore. They wouldn't. They weren't sure how much I understood things. So, and granted, that's that's probably true because you know, like every once in a while, like I, you know, I wouldn't know what was going on. Like I would hear a commercial on TV and there's explosions and people running and all the stuff going on. And then I said, "What in the heck was that?" And I was like, "Oh, it was it was a toothpaste commercial." I'm like, "What? <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds crazy." But for the most part, though, you know, I I did understand. And it's different. Like you see people in TV or movies and. They may be really smart. They're a normal person. They lose their eyesight, and suddenly they're walking around like 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 they're Frankenstein, you know, with their arms out. And somebody they've known their entire life comes up, and they don't and they don't rec- recognize them. You know, it's like it's like it's like they haven't heard their voice their whole life. You know, it's just it's, it's ridiculous. But that's what people think about when they think about blindness. And so I started painting because I wanted it to be two dimensional. I wanted it to be images because I wanted people to know that uh, you know, hey, there's John still in here. And, and that's why I started, you know, albeit the first drawings and paintings were very simple, but, but they were images, you know, and they were coming right from my brain. And, um, so I'm not sure if I answered your question. I think I went off on a tangent. No worries. No, no, no. That was, that was the, great. Let me ask you this. Um, how does losing your vision start to alter all your other senses and how does that impact your social interactions with people? It must be really interesting to have that shift. I mean, you mentioned that you had a son. Like, I, I'm just trying to imagine what life must be like in, from a socially interactive perspective, and I can't 
quite, you know, <laughs> strangely enough, put a picture in my head of it. So I'm really I'll, interested. Yeah. You know, you know, you know, there is, there, there is a good thing. Um, I'm really bad with people's names. I used to be good with faces, you know, so I've never <laughs> recognized it. And I'm really good with voices. I hear a voice that I heard five years ago, like, Hey, I know you. And, um, you know, even if I just met somebody br- briefly, but now that I'm blind, people always introduce their name. Even if I know them really well, they'll go like, Hey, John, it's Brian. Like, yeah, no, man, I see you every day. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's awesome because I, I do forget names a lot. Not, not people I see every day, but so it does have a fringe benefit. But about, about the senses though, that's, that's another interesting thing. Like my sense of touch is crazy good. I mean, just ridiculously good. I, I, I can count the threads in, in a pair of blue, blue jeans, you know, like the thread count. Um, it wasn't that way when I started. Like even when I was learning Braille, and I mostly use computers, screen readers, but like I Braille my paints in my studio. Uh-huh. So every paint has a label. So I do use Braille, mostly computers though. But when I first learned Braille, it felt like everything was a letter A. Like everything felt the same. So everything I read was just like, ah. And um, it took a while to start you know, being able to differentiate the dots. When I first drew, everything was these giant thick lines because that's the only lines I could feel. Now I, I, I can draw on the thinnest little line and, 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 you know, of course I've had years of practice, so, you know, you know, that makes a difference. One of the things though is color and I, I have synesthesia. I've had it all my life and, and that's where your senses cross over. And for me, whenever I hear music, I see color and I always have, and I thought everybody did that. But when I was sighted, I didn't focus on it that much. Like it was there, but I didn't really think about it. But since losing my eyesight, that's where I get my color from. And most of my paintings are actually music paintings. Because as I hear music, my brain is just inundated with color. And it does that also now with, with texture and flavor quite a bit. But by far the strongest is is music. And I've actually talked to some visually impaired musicians who have, who have the same thing, the same sort of synesthesia that, that have lost their eyesight later on. And they said the same thing happened. They, you know, they had that when they were sighted. But... Once they lost their eyesight, it just exploded, you know, and it's probably just because they noticed it more. They thought about it more. And um, and that's one reason why a big reason why they focused on music was because, you know, they, they wanted the color in their lives. But in my studio right now, um, if you went in there, um, music is a big part of it. I actually have a little sound booth and I have a setup that's the equivalent of what you'd find like in a small club. Like it, it's a little over the top, a little ridiculous, but it makes it where I can hear every breath of a singer. I, I can hear the fingers going up and down a fretboard. You know, I can hear every aspect, and it just makes it so clear. Um, you know, about my son, that's a really good thing. That whenever, you know, like I, I'd been painting a few years before I met my wife, and um, so I was blind, and I was a painter when I met her, and then when we had my son, I wondered. You know, I worried a little bit about some of the things that we would be able to do. You know, like usually dads and sons will play catch and things like that, you know, and I wonder, well, I wonder if we'll be able to do this or, you know, or how much I was worried he wasn't, he wasn't going to get like the full, I don't know, like you'd be robbed of something, of some, of some aspects of, of growing up with a blind dad. But to be honest, though, that, that just hasn't happened. All the worries that I had about that just, just have, they, they were just wrong. I mean, you know, I, I've been blind ever since, you know, before he was born. So that, I mean, that's just what he knows. Um, I have a guide dog, you know, and the guide dog goes everywhere with us. And, um, you know, everything is just normal. It's just the way that it is. And, um, you know, and it's funny, though, because, like, like if, if he if he makes something out of clay, if he makes a Lego set, 
Like he'll tell her, he'll tell everybody, Hey, look at this. And he'll, it'll bring it over to me and say, Hey dad, feel this, you know, cause he knows that's how I see things. Mm-hmm. But I also feel extra lucky. I'm like, I, I honestly feel like I'm probably the luckiest visually impaired person in the history of visually impaired people. <laughs> and that's because of art, because never before have the, has, has the non-visual world and the visual world crossed over. Like if you, if you, um, if you had a homework assignment, this this would be the easiest homework assignment ever. Like if you were asked to chart all of the blind people that painted in the history, because there really haven't been, like there haven't been blind people who got into painting. There's been some painters who have lost their eyesight, like Monet, who had these severe cataracts and things, and, you know, and they had to adapt. But this is the first time in history where you have people who are visually impaired getting into the artwork. And that to me is just amazing. It's incredible. And one of the things that I, I've been surprised about is like the orientation and mo- mo- mobility training that I do, like with a cane and with Echo, my guide dog. These are professionals who they spend their entire careers thinking of better ways for, for blind people to be able to spatially orient, to be able to, to navigate the world. Well, visual artists have been doing this for centuries, thinking of ways to break down a painting, to break down a visual idea, a composition and talk about it in the simplest ways possible. That way a painter in Italy, if he wants to describe a painting to someone in England, he can write it in a letter, he, he can describe the composition, and the, and the other guy can get it and read it and be able to build the painting in his mind. Those techniques work so well with being able to like touch a face, to be able to break down that face into small areas, um, to be able to use O&M techniques that we have now in conjunction with that, and actually get a perfect 3d view of what that person looks like and what in all what, what what all this leads to is that when whenever my son was born and he had just been born you know and he's still there he, you know he, the umbilical cord is still there but i was able to touch his face and see exactly what he looked like and i think i might be one of at least one of the first non-visual people in history to be able to do that and what a gift that is you know, and and just imagine what the future is going to be like for people who are visually impaired, you know, because this is just going to be a common sort of thing. You know, of all that, you said something in there that really struck a chord with me, and it was about bringing color into our lives. And I guess this is a sort of weird question, but how do we bring the color into our own lives, regardless of, you know, whatever our art is? You know, I think I think we have to open up our minds and... Forget about any sort of should, you know, like like it should be this, it should be that, and just feel it. And I know that whenever I was sighted, I was a very lazy seer. I'm not sure if seer is a real word, but I'm going to use it. <laughs> I, you know, whatever light bounced off an object, it happened to go through the lenses of my eyes. That's what color it was. So, you know, just reflected light. If light bounced off a red apple, it was a red apple. If it, you know, if it was a green apple, it was a green apple. And I didn't take it any further than that. And... Whenever I was sighted, if I did a drawing of a person, if it looked like the person, then it was a good drawing. If it didn't, then it was a bad drawing. After losing my eyesight, my whole idea of perception and color and what all that means, it just shifted. Now, if I, I do a lot of portrait work, and, and, and I've done some, some portraits of, of well-known people, of, of some, some, some celebrities. So if, when you do the portrait, it needs to look like the person. But that no longer is the most important thing to me. It needs to feel like the person. You know, it's like if 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 a relative of yours walked into the room and there's a room full of people 
Everybody's going to see that person, and they're going to see their hair, they're going to see their clothes, um, they're going to see the way they move, and everybody sees the same person, and yet everybody also has a different interpretation of what that person is like. Um, it's like you know, if a bank is robbed, and six people see see the robber, and when the you know when the cops interview them, they have six different descriptions usually of what the person looked like. You know, perception is a fluid sort of thing. Um, for me, color is emotion. It's it's feeling. It's who a person is. You know, it's the energy in a person. It, it's it's what makes you, a person different when they're happy and different when they're sad. You know, it, it's just it's a flavor, really, of 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 life. Wow. So, talk to me about the creative process that you go through when you start with a blank canvas. I'm personally very curious. You mentioned that, you know, you have colors in Braille, uh, and yet you can't even, you, you, you literally can't see what you've created, right? You have to feel it. Right. Well, that's true, but I see it with my hands. But so it's funny because now I'm so used to doing that. Of course, I, I use my sense of touch when I'm painting, but I also use it for everything else. You know, if I'm, if I'm drinking a, a cup of coffee, you know, to find the coffee cup and, you know, which coffee cup, coffee cup is it? You know, is it the one my son gave me? Is it another one? So I'm visualizing everything I'm touching. But yeah, when, whenever I'm doing art, um, it's funny because a sighted person really only uses their eyes for a few things. You know, you, you use your eyes to know where on a canvas you are, like, like where you're actually working at that moment. You know, you look to see, and you also look to see everywhere you've been. Well, for me, I use texture. So I can feel where I am. And I can also feel everywhere I've been. So that that whole problem's been solved. And over time, you know, I've, I've been able to work out techniques and ways to draw with more complexity, be able to put in more detail. It's just like anything. The more you do it, the better you get at it. You know, and you learn better ways to do it. So every painting I do, and I mean every painting I do, I'm trying out something a little bit different just to see, hey, does this make it a little better? Nope. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll never do, do, do that again. <laughs> Of course, the other thing that you use your eyes for is color, and color is actually easy. And I say that because I change the way color feels. And sometimes people are mistaken, and they think that I touch color and I can just tell what color it is, like through some mystical aura <laughs> or something like that. And I wish I could. That Man, I, I, I would never take my hands out of paint if, if that was true. I would just be totally painty all the time. But actually, I am pretty much totally painty all the time anyway, but... Um, but what I do though is actually change the way color feels. So, um, like like an oil paint, it's already kind of easy because oils are actually made from every color is made from something that's different. Like a sap green is made from a slowberry. Like in some brands, it depends on the brand. They use different things to make them. And I, I usually buy oil paints in different brands because they do have a different texture. But what I do though is actually enhance that texture. So a titanium white in oil is really thick. It's like toothpaste. And I could actually make that thicker by adding some different mediums to it. Ivory black is already pretty runny, so I can even enhance that and make it runnier. So if I have two colors on a canvas and one's really thick like toothpaste, and you know that's a white, one's really really runny, and I know it's a black. Even if you've never had any O and M training, even if you've never been, you know, had a day of your life that you're blind. Um, and I actually do workshops where we blindfold people, and I've done this with thousands of people in museums and schools where we'll blindfold people, I'll texturize the paint the way that I use it, and I'll give them raised line drawings that I've made. In five, ten minutes, they're painting. You know, it's very simple sort of paintings. 
but it just makes sense. If you know, if you're touching a really thick paint, it's got to be the white. If you're touching a runny paint, it's got to be the black. If you want to make a gray halfway between that black and white, I just mix for a texture that's halfway between the two. So whenever you know it's half as runny as a white, or you know, or twice as thick as a black, then I know it's halfway between. And another way to do it, which is really easy, is just sort of a recipe system. Like you know, five parts of this, five parts of that. That's pretty much half and half. So that's an easy way to do it. And there's some kind of paints where that works better, like um, with watercolors. Um, sometimes, depending on the type of watercolor you're using, um, you know, it's better to use a recipe. I mostly use acrylics now, and acrylic because of the amazing differences you can get in texture. And these textures, they're usually only you can only tell when they're wet. When they dry, um, it looks like anybody else's paintings. So I just use the texture usually to to help me differenti differentiate the color. And of course, when I start, though, all of the tubes in my studio are brailled. So they all have a brailled label. So I can read the paint and tell, oh, this is a titanium white. This is a cadmium red. Um, so I know what I'm starting with. And everything is separated. Like I have a giant, I, I, I use mechanic toolboxes, giant metal rolling toolboxes. So I have a giant one for oil paint and a giant one for acrylic. And um, in my palettes, I, I have different palettes for different colors. That way, if I have a really runny blue and a really runny red, I don't end up with an accidental runny purple. <laughs> Live and learn. <laughs> wow. Uh, you know, this actually takes me into a question uh, about judgment and self-awareness. And, you know, I would imagine that part of what keeps an adult from drawing is that we have a lot of self-judgment and self-awareness about how good or bad it is. Uh, you know, Austin Kleon had brought up this conversation with me, uh, this question with me. He said, you know, Linda Berry, the cartoonist, said somewhere at a certain age, we start to ask these two questions, does this suck or is it any good? <laughs> and what's interesting to me is that if I did it blindfolded, I feel like all that sort of self-awareness and self-judgment would go away. And I'm really interested in kind of hearing your perspective on that. I don't even know if it's really a question per se. Oh, you know, I, I didn't paint until after I lost my eyesight. Like before that, I, I did illustration drafting. Like I could draft a, the blueprints of a house. I, I could illustrate like an exploded view of an engine. I um, But I didn't paint because I didn't think I would be any good at it. So I was just a coward about it, you know, and I admired painting so much that I didn't think I would ever be any good at it, so it wasn't worth trying. Um, but I was like an armchair quarterback when it came to painting, though. Like, I'm just, I mean, I'm a huge nerd, so I would read about how Van Gogh would set up his, his studio and his palette, what colors he would use, Monet, how, how he would set up his palette, and ja Jackson Pollock. You know, everybody, I would read about the, the lives of these painters, and, you know, so, you know, I know all these great trivia things about them, but I didn't think I would ever be able to paint, so I never tried and I don't know, maybe I guess whenever I um, lost my eyesight, I figured, hey, you know, if, I, if I'm not any good at it, I won't, be, I, won't, I won't be able to see it anyway, so <laughs> it doesn't matter. But, but um, you know, I, 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 you know, the biggest gift that I gave myself, though, was that when I started painting, I thought, you know, this is, I don't even know if this is possible. I don't know if I can draw a line I can feel. Once I can, I'm not sure if I can mix colors. So what, I, so what I did, though, was say, I'm not going to judge anything for a year. Like, I'm not allowed to judge anything that I do for an entire year. And um, um, so, and of course, that's a habit. Like, whenever you do something, you start to fall back on that. And, and I would think, oh, yeah, I'm not allowed to do that. So 
after a year, I thought, you know, I'll look at it, and if I if I haven't advanced enough that we, you know where I think it's an appropriate amount, then I'm going to find something else to do. But I'm at least going to devote a year to this, and I do that every year. I've just kept that up, and it makes it where you give yourself more artistic license. You know, where you're not constantly defeating yourself because I, I honestly believe that with your brain, you can either you can do one thing at a time. You can either create or you can edit and judge. So if you want to create, then you need to create, you know, and then there's a time to go back and look at what you've written, what you've played, what you've what you've sculpted, what what you've painted and decide, you know, what's good about that, what what you enjoy about it, what's successful and what's not. But it's certainly not while you're doing it. Okay, so I think we got to the question that I wanted to ask. Um, two things. How do you let or cultivate that capacity for letting go of judgment when that voice in your head is just constantly saying, this sucks, it's not that good, or you know, whatever it's saying, and also give yourself artistic license? You know, um, it's funny because it, it, after a while, it, it, it takes a while because you're, you don't realize you're judging like I, I would, I would work on a drawing, and I think there is no way this is going to work out. And actually, that's true of every painting I do. I, I get to this like three quarter point where I think, how in the world is this thing ever going to come together? <laughs> this is going to be horrible. It's not going to work. And it's got to the point now where, I, where when I feel that way, I think, all right, <laughs> I'm almost getting to the end of this painting. So it's become a good feeling. But at first, though, I think you know, I, I you know, I don't think this is going to work out. You know, I'm just wasting my time. And then, and then I would remind myself, I think, oh yeah, I'm not allowed to think that. So, the finished painting isn't what's important. It's the work. It's that. It's the actual painting. So, whether or not the finished painting is any good, it does not matter. That just does not matter. It's the it's the act of painting. It's the act of the process of it. And it's I think it's the same. I, I love to write as well. Um, I wrote a book a couple of years ago, and and um. It was you know it was the same sort of sort of thing where you know whether or not this page I'm writing this chapter I'm writing turns out to be any good, it's the act of writing that's the most important. And I think I think Hemingway did it. You know he said sometimes I write my writing and sometimes it writes itself. But every day he would sit in front of his typewriter and force himself to write. And I think you know if you're a painter you paint, and if you're a writer you write. If you're a musician you play. And um, and don't judge what you're doing. You know just play. Amazing. Uh, so one last question before we start wrapping things up. Mm-hmm. Uh, how has this uh, impacted you know, the lives of other people who've come in contact with your work? You know, I started painting to connect with people. And, and I never really thought anybody would see a painting of mine. You know, I thought you know, maybe some friends, family. So I was trying to reconnect with the people that I knew. And it was never an idea. It was, it was never a thought that anybody other than that would ever see a painting of mine really. And so the connections that, that, I, that I've received, has just been, you know, I, I'm a talkative person, but I honestly, I can't find the words for it. It's just, it's, it goes beyond anything that I ever would have imagined. And I've met so many people that have gone through situations far worse than mine that have given me inspiration that have taught me so much. And I know that some people have written me in from all over the world, which is amazing to me. And they've said that they've, they've received that from me. And it makes me feel really good to be a part of the conversation, you know, to be an artist, to, 
be out there and creating, to making something new and positive in the world. And whether somebody likes a painting of mine, whether somebody hates a painting of mine, I find that equally enjoyable. It's just when people, somebody looks at my art and goes like, eh, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm like, whatever. <laughs> then That's the only time I go like, oh, gosh, I hate that. Because, you, know, you know, I don't know, whenever you make art, you want it to connect with people, I guess, one, one way or another, even if it's a negative way. But... Um, yeah, it's just, it's been a, it's been a crazy blessing. And whenever, after my first couple of shows, when some stories started being written and it got out that I was blind, that was the best thing. Cause I learned to talk about being, being visually impaired, about being disabled. And it led to me being able to work with a number of charities and nonprofits that I still do today. It led to me working with museums and I work with museums all over the country and making programs for people with disabilities, making programs for people that don't have disabilities, just making art more accessible for everybody. You know, it, you know, somebody, it's funny, a lot of the programs that we've come up with in museums were designed for people with disabilities, but they're so much fun. 90% of the people that sign up for them don't have a disability at all. It's just that they're hands-on art. And like, you know, if we're, if we're talking about the Italian art, then we may have some Italian food there. We may have like a Bellini to drink. We might have an opera singer come in and, you know, it might have actors portraying some of the parts and we can actually touch some of the paintings, some of the sculptures. Most museum tours don't have that, but we're doing that because we're trying to engage all of the senses. That way a person with a disability, no matter, no matter the disability can engage as well. But you know, everybody learns in different ways. Everybody takes in information in different ways. So by doing that, We've just made it more fun for everybody. It's just, you know, it's funny, but it's just, it's exploded. So trying to adapt the arts for people with disabilities has made it where it's just better for everybody. And I think that is just pretty cool. Awesome. Uh, well, John, I have one last question, which is how we close all our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. Mm -hmm. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh, my word. You know, <laughs> ah, that's, that's a good one, but... And this, you know, and this, this is probably a silly answer, but I, I think being yourself, um, so, so much we try to be like someone else, so much we, we try to be the way we, we think we should be or the way others think we should be. And very rarely does someone give themselves the license and the freedom to actually do what they want to do, how they want to do it. And whenever somebody does, it's a beautiful thing. Wow. Well, John, uh, I have to say, this has been just brilliant, uh, eye-opening, thought-provoking, inspiring. Uh, one of those interviews that I myself will probably replay a dozen times just because there was so much in it. I can't thank you enough for uh, oh, taking the time to join us. You're, you're too kind. I think, thank you so much. I, I, I've enjoyed this last hour so much. And thank, th thank you for spending this time with me. Yeah, my pleasure. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. 
Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. WarbyParker.com slash covered. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details sick of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for $90 more I can upgrade you to our shred membership for $130 more you'll be a swole member and for just $300 more you'll reach sweat platinum at Planet Fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator, that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, 
K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.